Welcome, everyone, to the Weekly Spotlight from Diversity in Apps. I'm Kabir Seth. And I'm Amy Kraft. And thanks so much for joining us. If this is your first time here, Diversity in Apps is a grassroots coalition. We're made up of researchers, producers, parents, and educators. And our mission is to raise awareness and engage in research about the need for inclusive, equitable, and diverse children's media. And one of the ways we do that is through this very podcast. And what Amy and I like to do is take our newsletter, which we send out uh, once a week. It has a series of articles that touched on diversity from, from the past week. And we sort of delve into them. We talk about them. We discuss them. Um, we might bring in some other articles that we found that relate to it. And really, it's a way for you to get excited to read them and share them with like-minded colleagues and really find out um, what we're about. And one of the things we often do is take the articles and relate it to our diversity um, toolkit, which we're putting together, the DIG toolkit. So um, the other piece that we have on this podcast, or we try to have every week, is a guest. So there are plenty of people working on diversity and inclusion in children's children's media. We love to have them on to talk about their work. And this week, we are excited to have Aaron Morris, who is here from PBS Kids. And we talked to him a little earlier today. And his interview is coming up um, later. So definitely stick around with that. So we're going to delve into the articles. But I know, Amy, you first wanted to... Um, you wanted to do a, a little... What, what should we call it? A little just, you know... Thought experiment, maybe. Yeah, thought experiment. Yes. All right, let's do Um, it. So just for you and for the people listening, clear your mind, (laughs) blank slate. That's right. And now imagine a mathematician, someone like who can just do calculations perfectly. They come out right every time. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. All right. Genius. Now let's take that person and have the mathematician work at NASA on the space program. So really like now we're getting into some advanced engineering. So we get, do you have the the visual of this person? I do. And think of now about who should play that person in the movie. Oh, wow. You can really, really sort of like, yeah, cast the, cast the movie and who might that person be? All right. I'm ready. Do you have an actor in mind? Um, I'm, I'm very, I'm leaning very much towards, I, I'm seeing Apollo 13, so, like, it's kind of, I'm, I'm thinking Ed Harris, but, um. Okay, great. Right. Um, now I want you to picture Taraji P. Henson from, Cookie from Empire <laughs> as the mathematician, and this brings us to the amazing trailer for the upcoming movie, Hidden Figures. That's right. You have seen this trailer, right? I have. I've seen it a couple times now, yeah. I think I caught and, it during the Olympics, I think. Oh, really? That's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. So for everyone listening, if you haven't already seen this, prepare to get excited because this movie looks amazing. This is about the women, specifically the African-American women, who were the human computers that put that launched men into space, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and it's such an extraordinary piece of our history because it's a narrative that I think a lot of us just didn't know about and would even having have trouble picturing. Yeah, I, right? I think that's exactly right. I I would I literally had no idea when when I saw this. This is like a pretty long trailer. It's like two and a half, three minutes. And I think like I just had these 
varied emotions of like, how have I never heard of this? Man, I feel really ignorant. Wow, this looks like a really awesome movie and a really awesome story. Um, it's actually based on a book, right? Right. Uh, so the author, Margot Lee Shetterly, apparently like has some history with uh, the space program as well, too. Uh, her father um, worked as a research scientist. Okay. Okay. So she knows a little bit about this. And right. I like is so the the book i'm very excited to read it and the movie i'm very excited to see yeah. there's a really awesome post on movie pilot um by david latchman who does the blog science versus hollywood and he lays out you know sort of scene by scene what we're seeing in the trailer and some of the real life um history behind it and i think it's such a great primer right. to like why we can get really excited about this movie. So it starts with um, Katherine Johnson, who's the character played by Taraji P. Hudson in the mm -hmm. movie, um, as a girl, as like this, like great, like the teachers are amazed, like you have to see what she can do, this is really great. And then she, um, Katherine Johnson, like as I learned in this post, went to West Virginia State College, mm -hmm. where she studied and was mentored with african-american mathematicians right. including the first um schleiflin claytor not right. sure if i'm saying that right the first known male african-american to publish a paper in mathematics right so like this this already like i'm already in love with this story <laughs> yeah that was amazing when i mean that wasn't even obviously that wasn't in the trailer and then when you're reading this article you're like wow this this is really extraordinary Right, right. Especially when you picture, um, you know, I think we're talking about like World War Two, mm -hmm. like right now, like is sort of like where this story begins. And when you think about uh, the narrative in our country's history about African Americans, you aren't picturing mathematicians. And no. I think that this is like extraordinary that this was the case. And this is our history that we need to know about and bring to life. So anyway, so um Katherine Johnson gets a job working for the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. And this is already interesting because here's where women go to work, right? Mm -hmm. Men are off at war. Right. Women are in the workplace. Um, and then because of the Jim Crow laws, like there's a segregation. So now the, the black women have formed this separate group of right. human computers. And then the space race um, transfers their focus from aeronautics into space travel because mm -hmm. now, like, this is the country's priority. Right. And these women, like, literally served as the human computers doing yeah. all the calculations to launch into space. <laughs> right. It was that term, just that term, human computer, um, you know, I'd never really heard it used as formally as like you know that's what they were considered and that's what they did it was just um incredible and it wasn't like something like they did it for six months and then like they got an actual computer like these people were doing computations like that was their job they were doing the job that a computer does now to to figure these things out it's crazy Right. And um, Octavia Spencer's in it. She plays Dorothy Vaughn, who heads up this group. Like, mm -hmm. she's basically, like, the head of this group. Right. And it appears from the trailer and from the history in this post that, like, she's like, Johnson, this is who you need. This is who is going to do it. Mm -hmm. And then Katherine Johnson continues to fight for a seat at the table, um, getting into briefings that, like, women have never been a part of. It's just... 
it's so amazing. And um, Janelle Monet plays someone named Mary Jackson, who was in this program as well, who was a real champion for like yeah. women's rights. And you see that a bit in the, the trailer. Right. And uh, this post talks about how she actually took a demotion so that she could help more women get through this program. It's just yeah. like all of these women sound so extraordinary right right that i mean the line in the trailer that really stuck with me was when um mary jackson janelle monet's character um says that you know we're our father's daughters and then we're our husband's wives and then we're our baby's mamas and it was like you know that's something that women still talk about today like the role of of women in the Mm -hmm. workplace and like it's obvious from the story that you know they it it seems like there are times where Janelle Monae's character is sort of pushing this idea that women need to continue to mm-hmm. to strive forward. So um, and, yeah. and particularly black women, I think yeah. it's really just an extraordinary thing to have both in the book form and on film. You know, I think we've talked a little bit before about Oscars so white, and mm-hmm. it seems to me that like when you get a largely African-American cast in a movie, if it's going to succeed at the Oscars, it tends to be about slavery. You know, it's sort of like Oscars so pigeonholes some of these films and the stories that you can tell that having this be a new narrative, and I've heard Oscar buzz about it, it looks charming, it looks funny, it looks Mm -hmm. fascinating, and these actresses look look like they're having a fantastic time. (laughs) Agreed, agreed. I think it's a really great thing that, like, you know, this isn't something that we can dream up that maybe one day in the future we can get to this state. It's This was in our history. Right, this is real history, and like you said, it shouldn't be erased. Like, it's it's just so important, and yeah, I think... um, pigeonholing these african-american stories as like you said either about slavery or about civil rights like it's this needs to be told and you know i just wish i i knew about it earlier so it just seems so extraordinary i think the only um the only concern i have is kevin costner's in the movie who i'm fine with i don't have a problem with kevin costner it's just i i'm i don't want it to be a white savior movie like i want this movie to be about these three women and you know what they did and the accomplishments they have. I don't want it to be this sort of car- this movie where Kevin Costner is super tolerant and like he's the one, you know, breaking down the barriers. It's just I'm not. <laughs> that's not my cup of tea. It's not the story we need. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. There's enough um, of those. So. You know, like yeah. well, you can figure like allies are important in this process. Agreed. Like, that we don't need them as the center thing. Yeah, I don't want but them to be the centerpiece. Looking True. at the movie poster and the trailer gives me a lot of hope that it yeah. really is. These three women are at the forefront, um, particularly Katherine Johnson. Right. It's also directed by Theodore Melfi, who did Saint Vincent. Did you see that with Bill Murray? No, and- I didn't. I didn't McCarthy. see that. Yeah, Melissa McCarthy. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, it, it's Melissa McCarthy in one of her most subdued roles, but the mm-hmm. role of women in that movie, like it, they're very interesting female uh-huh. characters. And so I feel like he's got a little bit of a, a track record okay. now. Okay. Or, yeah. But, I actually, when yeah, I was watching the trailer, <laughs> when I was watching the trailer, I actually stopped it to when they got to the credits to like, look at who's directing, who's producing, just hope. And I was too lazy to actually Google their names. I thought I was hoping that I would just recognize the name. Um, so I'm glad you, you did that and we feel a little bit, a little bit more comfortable. So yeah. what, I yeah. just, what my hope for this movie is like our current narrative about 
STEM and the technology fields in general is mm-hmm. that like women are no good at it. You know, there are no good people of color to take right. these jobs and like that there's really just this stereotype that's come up, you know, probably since the eighties mm-hmm. of like this is like the white guy playing ground. Yeah. Um, so I hope that by recognizing that this was part of our history, we can really weave it more into our future. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, um, not like, like we've said over and over again, like girls obviously need to see that need to see this because, you know, women can be scientists, they can be mathematicians, they can work for NASA and, you know, guys need to see that too. So that to eliminate the stereotype that, um, no, oh, guess. yeah, and there was uh, this wonderful detail in uh, the movie pilot post about how as they were starting to use actual computers for the space program, they had Katherine Johnson check. Oh, right, right. <laughs> to, to see, like, and then they saw that, okay, the computer is doing things as she would do it. Now right. we can use this computer. Yeah, so I think, that, like, when you see that, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that was extraordinary that John Glenn, um, you know, the first guy to, to orbit around the Earth, asked Johnson to verify the the computer's calculations. That was incredible. So Yeah, he would not fly until she did. Right, so, right. Yeah. yeah so I, it's, he it's put his great, life in her hands. You right, know? right, exactly. Um, it's a great piece. And it actually, um, this segues nicely with the, the, the second article we wanted to talk about, which is um, by Lenise Brissett in uh, Vox this week and uh, the headline is I, I help organizations hire people and watch white candidates get favored again and again so the author is actually the founder of a, a, a talent group it's, it's called compass talent group which basically goes out and finds leadership um, finds people for leadership positions um, in educational organizations nonprofits etc and the way that she frames the piece um, is really around these two candidates. They are searching for, um, they're searching for candidates for a open leadership position at a at a nonprofit. And the first, um, you know, they've changed the names, but the the first one is a female, Naima, I think is how you pronounced it. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a Princeton and Yale grad, ten plus years of experience, um, both private sector, nonprofit, etc. Um, very strong candidate. And the second candidate, Matt, is. Not as strong, um, has some nonprofit experience, but it seems to have sort of not excellent um, functional area expertise. So not exactly meeting, um, you know, what what they're exactly what they're looking for. So um, she documents the process. It's very clear, you know, what's what's sort of going to happen. And um, what she goes through is that Naima, who's clearly qualified for the position, and who she pushes, the author pushes for the CEO to to hire um, goes through an extra long process, you know, four weeks, additional four weeks of interviews um, to to actually get the position. And Matt, who is clearly not as qualified, got it all the way to the point where he got to interview with um, with the CEO. And she's, she documents um, and takes on sort of some of the things that we've heard about hiring diverse workforces. And you know, one of the first things, that, and this came up, I think, like a, a couple weeks ago from Facebook, where they were like, you know, there just aren't enough qualified candidates of color. And so she goes through things to, to think about. And one of the things we've talked about with our Dig Toolkit is with hiring is 
you have to look beyond your network. And she cites it right here that more than 80% of social networks are racially homogenous. So, you know, if you're asking friends and colleagues, do you know someone? Well, chances are that person's going to look a lot like you, um, mm-hmm. which I thought was, was pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and it, like hiring's hard anyway. So mm-hmm. if you can get the referral, like this is a friend of a friend or a former coworker of this right. worker who we really like, yeah. it just makes everything easy. Like some people don't even do job listings; they yeah. just hire based on references. Exactly. So like it's an important thing to think about. Like just mm-hmm. even like how are you letting people know that a job is available at your company? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the second thing she talks about is your recruitment channels. And you and I went to uh, went to a talk where the, the new Google diversity director was talking about how previously, you know, maybe just up until recently, Google only recruited from like five or six schools across the entire country, um, which is insane. And so, yeah. you know, they've made a, a strong push to um, to look at more schools, including historically black colleges, um, which is super important to create a diverse and, um, and strong, uh, workforce. And so, um, to take a step back, what, what, um, the other thing that, you know, when she's first putting the candidates together, um, the hiring manager at the company actually said like, listen, I know, I noticed the pool is very diverse, but I want you to know that diversity is important, but quality matters most. And, Again, As if this you can't have both. Yeah, it's like, exactly. It just reiterates this like diversity versus quality um, piece, which is ridiculous. Um, and you know, she she points that out that um, if you find yourself um, saying diversity is important, but um, you need to reevaluate what you're saying. Um, did you take that in the article? They have a link to the implicit bias test. I haven't taken it yet. I haven't taken it. Yeah. I- I can guess what my advice <laughs> are, um, you know, having done a little self-examination of it. Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think... It's interesting, too, because there's so much research of, like, you know, if you have um, diverse workforce, if you mm-hmm. have women in your C-suite, your company does better. Right. Like, so it's not even a matter of, like, like there's sound business sense right to these this, are facts which like, always yeah. always yeah. why like that was startling to me it's like when you keep hiring people who are all the same you know there's there's a, a very homogenous way of looking at how you do business right where right, exactly. you know get more people and more viewpoints maybe you can reach out to more customers and you know like it really people bring different ideas to the table based on who they are. Yeah. So if everyone's the same. I agree. You know, this, I, this, uh, this post mentions a lot about culture fit. So mm-hmm. like, I think that that's part of the big problem, right? It's like, Oh yeah. You know, we all like going out for beers after work and you know, this is our culture here. Can we hang out with you? And <laughs> that should not be the criteria for hiring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I think, you know, she, she takes that head on when they, um, when people say it's not a cultural fit, you know, you have to sort of look at how you're evaluating candidates. And she stresses that the questions you should be asking are measurable, not things like tell me about yourself, but more like tell me about a time that you led a team to success. And like there's clear comparisons that you can do. She talks about, um, you know, eliminating 
the like doing sort of a blind recruitment process where you take away all racial, cultural, and gender identifiers, um, you know, to that could creep into decision making. So, um, you know, she makes it very clear that like, look, this is not the answer, um, but it's a way to to move in this a step in the right direction. And I think we talk about that all the time with our dig toolkit with um, people making. Um, choices when you're creating content it's always about doing better and moving in the right direction and you know she she lays these things out very clearly and I think you know the thing that I liked is that she took on a lot of these arguments that you hear over and over again across the industry especially in tech um, about why it's so hard to to find anyone but um, a white male dominated workforce so mm-hmm. Um, and really shoots down like if you're using reasons like culture fit or my gut or just mm-hmm. something doesn't feel right to me if you're using like this very subjective language to describe why you're not comfortable with that person it's something that you need to look at and it's right. just like well you know i noticed in their job experience like you know they didn't do a good job with this therefore they're not qualified like that's the kind of stuff yeah yeah, exactly. Should be looking at, you yeah. know, you mentioned the blind recruiting, and there have been a lot of studies about, you know, if you take the names alone off of resumes mm-hmm. and like change up, like it changes who gets called because yep. if you have like a name that sounds like Matt, you know, you're gonna, <laughs> you have a much higher chance of getting a call than right. if you have a more ethnic sounding name. Yeah. Um, and so my million dollar idea reading this, I don't know if it exists. If it exists, it's very smart. But like to basically, um, if someone created like sort of a tech tool filter where your mm-hmm. applicants put in their resume, put in their name, you know, gender, where they went to school, and then employers could turn off as much of that as they want to just right. say like, I just want to look at skills and I just want to look at experience and judge yeah. things that way. And then get to like the name when you need to, when you've already gone through a screening process, like you've gotten 200 resumes, now we're down to 10, now let's see who we're looking at. Right. And then that, that alone could help diversify who you're calling and bringing in. But then of course the interview process is so, important as we see from Naima's process here (laughs) where we really have to put her through the ringer to (laughs) to give her a job um but yeah I think it's a it's a really interesting way like I'd love to see someone make it easy for companies to do this because it's hard hiring is hard you know you know making these efforts it's a challenge and you have to be committed to doing it but you know any startups out there or like LinkedIn if you want to monetize (laughs) (laughs) there you Um, go I feel like put that that on the whiteboard that's right exactly (laughs) revenue producing Um, I think for sure I think um, that it's it's something that you have to do and like you said those studies have shown over and over again that Make your name sound a little whiter. It helps you get the call back. Um, yeah, or this, if you're a woman, you know, use your initials. Right, right. Certainly women in publishing do this all the time. J.K. Rowling, ring <laughs> J.K. a bell. J.K. Rowling, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think um, this, like, I mean, in this particular story, it sort of um, ends on, on a good note where um, they did eventually end up hiring Naima, and then um, the the client wrote a letter to, to the author saying, you know, working with Naima has been one of the true joys of my job in the past year. I really credit you defining her and convincing me that she was our person. So, um, you know, in, in this case, things, things worked out and even the author sort of ends that she's optimistic 
that um, you know where people will will hire based on qualifications and capabilities, and and we'll start to see that um, you know the the workforce begins to diversify. So. You just got to keep pushing the boulder up the hill, right? right exactly. <laughs> what we always say. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, but both these pieces I, I really liked. I'm excited to uh, to see the new movie. Definitely check out this article. Um, coming up, we have a great interview with, with Aaron Morris. All right, folks, as promised last week, we have a great guest for the upcoming holiday weekend. With us this week is Aaron Morris, who is the Senior Manager of Community Engagement Content at PBS Kids. And our friends at the Cooney Center actually turned us on to Aaron's work with the AJC. And Aaron, thanks so much for coming on. Can you tell us a little bit more about what AJC is? Sure. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, AJC stands for Aprendiendo Juntos Council, uh, and it is a group of researchers and policy folks and producers and industry people who, who've who all been together for a, a few years now, um, really to, to catalyze the work, catalyze and support the work being done uh, in the media community uh, in an effort to do a better job of reaching Hispanic and Latino families in America with with content that is uh, appropriate, that resonates, that that reaches and uh, that helps uh, them have a fulfilling and engaging experience with the media that they're consuming and connecting with. Yeah, um, that, it's it's fantastic. Um, we we were actually turned on to this group I think early um, in the summer. One of our DIA members attended an event in Chicago. Um, I think that was either hosted or had quite a few people from AJC um, on it. And a friend of the podcast, Vicki Katz, um, I know has done a lot of work um, with with AJC. AJC. Um, so in your experience at, at PBS Kids, I guess, how have you guys um, interacted with AJC? And then just in general, what is sort of your day-to-day um, work as, as part of the uh, community engagement content? Sure. Uh, we, PBS PBS Kids' role at AJC, I, I feel like, is uh, one of being a really strong listener. Uh, mm-hmm. I find myself going to the meetings. We, they meet the the council meets yearly. We meet yearly. Um, I see. And then there are there are like quarterly or you know sometimes even a bit more frequently calls or webinars where we just all jump on the phone and, and touch base about each other's work and what what we're up to. But for for us, it's a really phenomenal opportunity to to dial into the research that's being done with Hispanic Latino families across the country to learn uh, from what that research is telling us about, you know, everything from, you know, their connectivity and, and how how connected they are, um, which is a lot of the work that that Vicky Katz is doing, and it's phenomenal work. And and she she and Vicky right out put out a, a phenomenal phenomenal joint study uh the underconnected piece of right almost a year ago right yeah Uh, yeah exactly that 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 sort of like found its way on onto every single table and every single meeting uh amongst the pbs kids group just because it's it's great and important and valuable information and it and and helps to inform a lot of the work that we're doing helps us continue to learn because there's a lot that we don't know and it's great to just be surrounded by experts um, right. so that's that's what our takeaway from the council is and you know then 
from from our perspective, it's like then we can say to the council, okay, we need to do better. Uh, we need to make more make more strides and and do more to reach to reach these diverse audiences. And so it it sort of sort of keeps us honest in a way, you know, yeah. like makes us it puts a fire under us to to do a better job because we are public media. It's, it is in our mission to reach all of America's children, and so we we really uh, we really want to come through on that promise, you know. Right, right. That that makes a lot of sense. I think you know certainly um, listening to the community and understanding how how you shape the content um, you create. So um, you know, in in addition to you mentioned the the long research work um, that um, that Vicky had had, had done. Um, you know, you guys are also putting together a set of tip sheets and and short form case studies. Um, you know that are specific again for Latino children and and families. And one of the um, you know the, the first one that you've put out this tip sheet is specifically tied to or, or really is is a call out for producers. So um, why was this sort of the first one that you guys put together f- specifically for producers? The uh, the, the council is really interested in making sure that that we're making the connections between the research and the industry itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge focus of of connecting the dots and and taking something. You know, I, I'm not crazy in saying this, but like a lot of research gets out there and gets put out there and it gets circulated amongst academic circles. Sure. Uh, maybe maybe celebrated amongst academic circles, but never really makes it outside of those circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and that's a shame, right? Because there's a lot of incredible work being done in all disciplines. Uh, and you know, part of the part of the reason this group was even you know brought into being was was to make research translatable to other audiences. Uh, and so this whole this is the first of what I hope will be many uh, you know translation pieces really uh, that the council takes on in an effort to really to really speak the different languages of the community members and to take the you know this one is taking the research that. Some it was very specifically as pointing to research that members in the council uh, did, mm-hmm. and and saying, okay, well, what does that actually mean for us? Like, how do I make that actionable? Like, how do I make these data points and and these statistics and these findings into something that I can actually uh, in, fold into my work over here on the media side of things, so that I actually am like listening to it and using that knowledge to to push things forward. For sure. I think, Amy, we, that, um, what Aaron just said was sort of a conversation that, that we've had so many times where, right, with the toolkit where we don't want it to be something that, you know, is handed out or is maybe given at a conference and then it just goes and gets put on a shelf, right? Absolutely. And yeah. I remember when I went to the IDC conference, Aaron, uh-huh. I don't know if you've ever been to that. Um, I, I was one of the only like consumer facing media people in the room, which I also found strange, but it was a lot <laughs> of like academic research presented. I'm like, I didn't know any of this. And then what I noticed is on the flip side of that, the academics in the room didn't know what was going on on the consumer side. Like very few people in the room, it came up during one speech had heard of Tokoboka, which is, you know, one of like the biggest app producers for children. And so I was like, oh, there really needs to be more of a conversation between these two groups because we could really help each other. Right. right. Absolutely. Amy, which which IDC were you at? It was the one in New York a couple years ago. Yeah, I was I was there. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, a couple years later, I was like, it was like maybe a year ago. I was at the one in Boston, and I actually sat on an industry panel, 
and that's uh-huh. what it was called. It was called the industry panel because it was like the one opportunity for like non-researchers <laughs> exactly. to like address the audience. Uh, and it, it's a phenomenal conference, and it's great for. I love going as someone that's on this side of it because I do get to like see all this research that's happening, and it's fascinating. But you you nailed it. It's we need to do a better job of connecting connecting these communities, and the council does a great job of it. So it's, it's right. nice. It's nice that it exists. Yeah, I I think you know the other thing that I love about this is um, certainly you know um, there's there's work that also sort of goes out directly to parents and sort of is is there to inform parents. And the reason I really love this tip sheet is because it's really calling out to producers. And I think um, we talk about this all the time on the podcast, but I don't think it's talked about enough that. Um, you know, the people creating the content, sort of everything that comes before you actually see the finished toy or the finished app, etc., is really what's going to determine, uh, you know, the diversity and inclusiveness of it. And this tip sheet sort of starts right there with those people who, who are creating it. So, um, Aaron, do you want to just sort of go through it a little bit, um, you know, roughly talk about the, uh, the tips or maybe we can go um, tip by tip and then sort of also how that goes hand in hand with what, what we're doing with the toolkit. Sure. I wonder if too, we could start just because this was new to me Mm -hmm. more recently than I'd care to admit, but what are we talking about? The difference between Hispanic and Latino, you know, when we use those terms, they often get um, used interchangeably, but that's not actually correct. I'd love for you to just set as a primer for anyone who's listening who might not know. Oh, I, I got to be honest. I don't think I'm qualified to speak to that. Um, Interesting. I use it. I use it out of being a part of. I I call out both terms as because I'm a part of this group, and that is uh, sort of just me taking on the social norms of the group. But I I don't feel confident or comfortable speaking to the difference. But if you do, I'm happy to learn from you. Well. I- I don't know. It's just like I've watched videos on this and I've seen it like come up enough times like in blog posts and YouTube videos that I feel like it's worth a mention. Sure. But, and I've also read enough that like no one completely agrees on what these two terms <laughs> mean. Um, but Hispanic is derived from Spain. So if you're from a Spanish speaking country or something that was at one time colonized by Spain, that's referred to as. Hispanic, so that would be inclusive of Spain, but not of, say, Portuguese-speaking Brazil, Um, Uh. whereas Latino is is Latin America, you know, so then Spain wouldn't be Latino. So I just thought that was, like, really interesting that, like, we just sort of, like, throw these labels around, but they do have different meaning. What I loved about your tip sheet is just the hyphenated Hispanic Latino, like, and it even mentions at the top this community is incredibly diverse that we can't we talked about this a, a couple podcasts yeah. ago that this is a very diverse community so just kind of talking to them i mean and d- did this come up in the research of like you can't just make blanket statements yeah about this group first of all you did a much better job of defining <laughs> communities than i would have so i'm really glad you took that so thank you um i think yeah one of the biggest eye-opening uh, things for me when I sort of dove into this this work and this research and this this body of understanding is is the diversity of the community uh, and it is most it is easiest to uh, to focus on the language aspect of it uh, but culture I mean just culturally more broadly culturally as well it's just 
what uh, a Cuban American, how a Cuban American, you know, their a Cuban American's culture is not the same as a Mexican American's culture, and mm-hmm. they don't use the same Spanish, and they don't celebrate the same holidays necessarily, or do the, or celebrate them in the same way, or eat the same foods. It, 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 there's so much variability within the larger Hispanic Latino community, uh, and so to. To do a, you know, we find this with some of our translation work, to do a blanket Spanish translation, you are going to be, you sort of have to make a decision, like, are you going to translate into to Mexican Spanish or to Cuban Spanish or to Guatemalan Spanish? Uh, oh, and, wow. and there are differences there. And, right. you know, who you choose to work with in doing that translation work will will make an impact on, on you know, who you're, who you're reaching. Uh, not that, not that, you know, if you work with a uh, a Cuban American translator who then you know sort of pushes the translation in that specific direction, not that like a different Spanish speaker wouldn't understand the Spanish. It's just mm-hmm. there are going to be words, there's going to be phrasing that you know is going to feel not as natural to a, a different a different a different right, part right. of the culture. Um, yeah, it's very similar to um, like in in Indian culture, um, like Hindi is like normally what's spoken but um like punjabi sounds very similar to hindi so it's like the same idea like if somebody translated to punjabi like it would like someone who knows hindi would still be able to sort of pick it up but there would be subtle differences mm-hmm. just my um, personal take there. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's true of I mean right. that's true of English that we, people in different parts of yeah countries speak English in different ways I mean it is true it must be true, true. of most languages and cultures yeah. um yeah I think sure. One of the I'm going on a brief tangent, but it was really fun in the first AJC meeting. We heard from um, a woman from Nickelodeon, Marina, and I'm I'm not going to remember her last name right now. But she she works on Dora the Explorer, uh, which is a, a a show that tackles Hispanic Latino culture in a a pan Latino way. So mm-hmm. it tries to incorporate. It sort of tries to do it in. in in a blanket way that that sort of is a nod to all of the cultures and doesn't necessarily try to hone in on a specific uh, culture. And I, I found and they're very conscious of it and they're very uh, smart about it. I thought uh, and it was really it was really interesting and wonderful to learn from her and her work, uh, doing the best that they can to be inclusive of of all Hispanic Latinos in in their work. Yeah, yeah. So. Um... As we dig into the the tip sheet, I think one of the things that you you talked about, if I if I jump ahead to tip two, is, is creating language and learning supports. Um, you know, it sounds like that. Um, you know, even when you're sort of doing these translations, like you talk about how, um, you know, the that standard English to Spanish translations don't always capture the nuances of the wide variety of dialects spoken by Hispanic Latinos. Um, so it sounds like you have to sort of identify who your audience is, but do you have to identify it even within the Hispanic Latino community? I think, and I'll speak from how we approach the work. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, we've made a choice about, uh, we have a, we have a, like a really solid set of, of uh, wonderful people that we work with that do our translation work. Uh, And we're really conscious about staying consistent with working with that same group because they, keep the voice they keep our voice consistent uh so you know it's it's really a brand it's a brand thing right if we're trying to make sure that we keep our 
in English keep keep our voice and our tone and sure. our language consistent across the board. We we need to make sure that we're doing the same when we translate the work uh, into other languages. So if we were to hire, you know, if we had a whole range, if we went to a different translator every time we took on a new project that we wanted to to make sure was also available in Spanish, uh, we might run into some discrepancies with tone, with voice, with you know, dialect, all those pieces. So we 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 choose to stay consistent. Yeah. Um, yeah. and and I don't know that we're as I don't know that we're like I wouldn't call it the approach a pan Latino approach, but we're definitely attempting to to make sure that that when we do our translation work that we're reaching everybody. Right. Right. Yeah. And and I think you guys sort of mentioned in there. Um, providing channels for consumer feedback um, when you're designing the product. And I think that's one of the things that we've talked about with the toolkit um, where we have sort of one of the key cri- criteria is audience and sort of engaging with, with your audience. Um, that is so that is so important. Uh, it's important for us during uh, the development process uh, to be testing with the diversity of families, not just Hispanic, Latino families but and kids, but like all families to be testing our products with a very diverse audience. But also, you know, once we release a product uh, into the wild, making sure that there are open channels of communication and that we are listening to the audience as they're engaging with our content and responding to them. Um, right. And that's right. something that, that, you know, if PBS Kids is a traditional broadcast media company that's something where the digital aspect of our business is really allowed to to be flexible in that way where the broadcast isn't as flexible you know that if someone sees a problem with something in inside one of our apps yeah. it's really easy for us to go and fix it uh, and so it's really nice to have that open communication for sure that iterative process i think one of the things that i really loved about um under your tip where you had make your product relatable was your second bullet was very clear build in time to test your product with Hispanic Latino audiences. And like, I I think Amy, you know, we like have a specific piece of criteria, right? With budget and timeline in our toolkit that, that makes it so clear that like you cannot just expect to have a diverse and inclusive product unless you build in time to do it. Right. I mean, and time to to respond. Mm -hmm. Aaron, can you talk about what form your testing takes or forms? Yeah, it it varies project to project. Uh, so I'll speak to uh, Amy just to like step back real quick. Uh, in my current role, I'm working a lot with stations, uh, and I'm doing community I'm doing community engagement work now, uh, where where I'm really developing programs with stations across the country so that they can engage kids and families on the ground in like after school programming or or weekend family programming or programming in museums, things like that. Uh, and so I'll answer the question through that lens, but I also would love to answer it through the digital lens. With the, with the community engagement work I'm doing, I, I, have, I sort of like have test beds across the country when we're developing these community engagement programs. I've got uh, communities, I've, I mean, there are over 300 PBS stations across the country. I'm not working with all of them. They're all very different. They all uh, work with very different communities and serve different purposes amongst those communities based on how they choose to run their station. Uh, and so when we're developing these programs, uh, we can pilot these programs in, you know, I can pilot a new family engagement program in, in 10 different places uh, and find out, find out lots and lots of information because they're engaging different communities. Um, just to be very specific, we're developing a, 
a family engagement program around one of our apps, PBS Kids Scratch Junior, where we're we're asking families to come together uh, for multi-week sessions where they actually create and learn how to code together as a family and they make their own family projects. Uh, and I'm right now, I'm right Love now, that. Yeah. So it's such exciting work. Uh, and I'm right now piloting it in, uh, in 10 different stations across the country. Uh, I say I, we are piloting <laughs> stations across the country. I'm not, I'm not doing the, the lion's share of that work, but, uh, the first, the first pilot kicked off last night, uh, at KLRU, which is the station in Austin, Texas, and uh, I think it's—I think there are eight families that are a part of that pilot, and 75% of them are Spanish-speaking families, and the other—the other two are English-speaking families. Uh, and that, you know, that's going to be a really interesting study compared to a study that's going to happen in Cookville, Tennessee, in a couple weeks. And mm-hmm. it's just going to be this really wonderful opportunity to to go through an entire program as a pilot and, and see how it works. But to, to step back for a second, I before this position, I was working on the, the PBS Kids digital team. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was managing the creation of our apps and websites uh, and, and games with a really phenomenal team there. And we, in that department, we have a really awesome uh, formative evaluation program set up locally in in Washington, D.C., uh, where we have relationships with schools and museums across Virginia, Maryland, and the district. Uh, and anytime, you know, anytime we have uh, a prototype, an alpha, a beta that, that we want to get in front of kids or families, uh, we have a really awesome network that we can just reach out to and say, hey, can we come test? And we, you know, are con- we're going out and testing it once or tw- if not twice a week because uh, we're making a lot of content. Uh, and so that, so that's some like quick and dirty testing that we can just get done all the time. And uh, because of that network, we can really tap into different communities throughout the area because it's a very diverse, you know, tri-state region. Um, but then, you know, when we have when we have more time and more budget, and it's a bigger project, you know, we'll also go take the next step and we'll. You know, hire a, a, an outside evaluator and do focus groups, or uh, you know, larger evaluation studies during development, or and or summative evaluation studies after a product is launched. Um, so there's a really wide spectrum of, of of how and and when and and what we do with you know the communities when we want to make sure we get our product in front of lots of people while we're developing. I'm glad you hit on budget because, like, as you say, if you want to go into schools or museums, that can be, like, a low or no-cost endeavor. No cost. Yeah. I mean, and it has to be because we don't all have hundreds of millions of dollars lying around. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, Right. So I encourage everyone, if you need to build it into your budget, there are ways. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking to folks listening, uh, we, our budget for that, that that formative piece that I was talking about, that that building that school network, we don't have a budget for that. That is, uh, that is just us forming relationships with with the communities around us. Uh, and you know, we're. I, I have to mention the fact that we're lucky, right? We are. We come with a brand mm-hmm. that that gets that gets us in the door. You know, nine times out of ten, it, it, it's really a, a rare occurrence when some school or some library or some museum isn't excited to work with PBS kids. So like we have it really easy in that regard. But like if you're making if you're making a product that is, you know, a positive educational experience for for children and for families, uh you just need to make that pitch and the people are excited to help and excited to uh 
be a part of those processes. I, it's I can't tell you how excited kids get when when we explain to them that there are that there are testers that they're going to make these games better. That they're the first they're the first kids in the whole world to see these games. They just get so excited about that experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can I can imagine that. Um, no, for sure. I think making an effort and sort of like you're saying, hustling to to find um, find a way to to reach your audience and and test it out before um, so you can get the proper feedback and and make a a very strong product is um, makes a lot of sense. I think um, the other thing, the other sort of two tips that that you guys uh, mentioned on the sheet is aiming for easy discovery and and thinking mobile so um when you're when you're saying easy discovery i think for any indie developer just being discovered um you know getting their product discovered is is certainly a challenge what um what did you mean here by aiming for easy discovery i think you you hit on the the first piece which is just that if you know anyone that's in if we're talking apps or if we're talking content in general, uh, there's just so much of it out there. Right. Uh, and, you know, putting aside reaching Hispanic Latino families for a second, uh, just reaching any family in this like overcrowded marketplace of, of digital content for kids is, is a tough, is a tough game. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's one that, it's one that if you're going to rely on the app stores themselves, like you have very little control, uh, and so you you really need to if you know whole picture wise really think through your strategy for how you're gonna get how you're gonna get discovered how you're gonna how people are gonna find you um, and you can't just rely on the app stores because there's just there's millions of apps and your app is gonna get buried unless for some reason it hits that like viral sweet spot which is you know one in a, one in ten million at this point it feels like unless mm-hmm. you're Pokemon Go uh, <laughs> but but you can be really you know, moving the conversation back to Hispanic Latino families, like you can be really smart about uh, about coming up with those plans just by paying attention to to the research uh, and listening to to where it is that families are uh, and where families are looking for content, how they're looking for content, and and who they're turning to. Uh, you know, looking at the at the bullet points under tip three, which is aim for easy discovery. Like we know. That Hispanic Latino families, you know, really trust their teacher, the teachers and the educators of their children. Uh, mm-hmm. th- you know, that is they, that is like the number one source for trust. That that is the number one uh, resource that they turn to for advice, for like where to go, what kinds of things to look for. Uh, and so, and so that was super interesting for us because we PBS Kids we play in the informal space, and we're and we're really proud of playing in the informal space uh, and don't always see ourselves as being you know something that should be utilized in the school maybe we're something that connects school to home uh, in a nice way but you know knowing how trusted and how looked to teachers are it, it, it's become important for us to make sure that teachers know about us as much as parents know about us and about the content that we're putting out because if we want these families that are turning to teachers to say what should I get from my kid? What should we download on our phone? What should we download on our tablet at home? Then we need to make sure that the teachers are like ready to say, "Oh, this PBS Kids app is awesome! Like this right. will help with this, this, and this." Uh, and that's an audience that we hadn't necessarily reached out to on the PBS Kids side in the past, but are, are doing more now to to reach out to. Yeah, I think I think this um, this tip number three is is um, like you said. I, I think 
Um, there are maybe specific things that can apply to Hispanic Latino parents, um, but in general, I think you know the pieces that you mentioned, reaching out to teachers and educators, social media and and digital channels like YouTube. That's where parents already are. They're already looking for content there, and that's sort of how um, you know how you can can get your content in front of of those um, those folks. I think the fourth one, you know, thinking mobile. Um, was was really one of my favorites because I think when we were putting together the toolkit, um, you know, we we have down internet connectivity and device choices as one of the key criteria to be thinking about when you're creating um, any type of content. And you guys hit on two huge things. One is how if if someone is not connected to the internet, does your app or does your product still work? And the second thing is like when you're creating maybe specifically an app, how big is this um, product that you're downloading? And you see a lot of children's apps that have become you know hugely bloated, and on certain devices they just just won't run. So can you guys talk a little bit? Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that in the context of Hispanic Latino families? Uh, sure. I all I can I mean I can start with saying I just. I, I agree with you that I think those two points are, are so important um, mm-hmm. because we know actually it's it's the study done by the two Vickies, Vicky Rada right. and Vicky Katz. Like we know we know that most families in America, Hispanic Latino families included, have a smart device in the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we know it's a huge percentage, and I'm not going to quote the percentage because I'll get it wrong, but it, it's a lot. It's the majority of families in this country. Right. Uh, right. But just because. And, and because they have that smart device, it also means that they are connected to the internet uh, in some way. But like, what connectivity means is such is such a variable thing. Uh, just because exactly. someone has connection to the internet doesn't mean that like that connection is something that can be relied upon, or something that like that that we can rely on and, and assume is there because it comes in all shapes and sizes. Uh, and while while most families have a smart device in their home, uh, you know, Hispanic Latino families more than others, but, you know, a lot of families are underconnected and, you know, meaning that they have very limited data plans or doing pay-as-you-go data plans or, you know, mm-hmm. aren't, aren't actually ever connecting, aren't ever connecting to Wi-Fi and are only relying on their data plan. So if they have a limited data plan and your app only, you know, runs on the web then you are, you know, you're you're making them make a choice between you know letting their kid play with this app and or whatever else they might need or want to do on their phones and like as much as you can avoid make having to make families make those decisions those either or decisions you should work to do so uh yeah for sure i know it, i know it's something that i thought about when i was putting together my apps amy was it something that you guys as you were putting together scavenger hunt that like definitely came up how do we make sure they can use this i mean your app is built for that, right? It, it was very much like after you download it, you need no connectivity. And that mm-hmm. was important for some of our partners that we're working with. Like museums don't always have it. So if, we're, if you're going into a museum and using it, we want to be able to do it. I'm also very passionate about this because I play games on the subway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like I always want things to work, you know. For sure. I think this idea of a sort of an offline mode or like if I'm not connected, I can't do anything with your app. Like that's a that's a surefire way to make sure your app gets buried or 
um, just starts to get ignored because most of the time, you know, people are not connected and they're going to be in places um, where they're either on a cellular connection or, you know, they don't have access to Wi-Fi. So yeah. I'll um, say two things real quick. One is a shameless plug for our PBS Kids Games app, which came out this su spring, summer. Uh, and with that app, I we've done a really nice job of sort of creating a hybrid uh, because the app, the app brings in, you know, in the last five years, we've really, you know, moved away from Flash and started developing all of our online games in HTML5. Uh, and because we wanted to make sure that they were accessible on, on multiple devices, not just on, on desktop computers anymore because, because of the move to mobile. Uh, and that, the Games app brings in a lot of the, the web games that we've created over the last few years and makes them all accessible in, in one place across all of our properties. And it's a really, it's a really wonderful experience. Uh, but we also had to contend with the fact that, uh, that it, for the most part, it, if you want to play those games, they're coming from the web. You, you need connectivity. So we created a way where you can sort of, as a parent, you can go in and, and preload a subset of games onto the device that stores them locally through the app. Uh, and the parent can also control, like, how much space they want to be available for the app. So, like, if, oh, you, only want, if you only want there to be, you only want the app to take up, you know, 100 megabytes, uh, you can sort of, like, set that parameter and it'll allow you to download that much amount of game content to store locally, or you can up that number. So parents can really play with how big they want the app to get and how many of the games they want to be able to store locally that can be accessed when not online, which is a really nice Yeah, that's feature. great. That That's incredible. It's, Those are really smart really... settings. Yeah, and then the really other thing things. I'd say is uh, just to, you know reaching out to developers who are cont contending with these issues, uh, the cellular companies, you know, the Verizons and the T-Mobiles and the Sprints, as they're competing for customers now, are, are starting to play with models of, of free data. And they're really doing it as a marketing play right now where, like, uh, you know, when you stream this content or when you engage with this content, oh, like, right. it won't right. cost any data from your data plan. Um, it'll just be... so. You'll still need to have like whatever you know connectivity, however many bars you need. It, you know, might not work in the subway, uh, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting move that they're starting to push towards, where they're starting to like dangle content as being free data content and content mm -hmm. that can be engaged with without it incurring any cost to your data plan. Uh, and I'm I'm paying attention to it. I'm just curious, like. If there start to be ways where where developers and, and producers of content can you know reach out to these companies to say hey you know this is going to be a really great experience for for kids and for families you know you should incorporate it into that that work that you're doing and then you can help to make your your product more more inclusive so it can reach more people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense that. Um, I think companies are, are continuing or, you know, cellular companies are trying to sort of um, limit the amount of data that certain users are are um, using. And obviously that um, that can hurt families who are just simply trying to engage with an app. I think the other thing is just sort of sizing, like how much disk space your um, your app takes up is something that 
um, is going to continue to be a challenge. And I think what you guys did with, with as you mentioned, with the PBS apps is basically allowing parents to have a choice and, and that flexibility of um, not having it eat up so much disk space is, is a smart way to go and, and should be sort of a best practice that, um, that app developers continue to, to do. Agreed. But size is, size is a, not but, but size is a conversation that you should be having from day one, especially Agreed. with with an app uh, for kids because there's a there's a real desire to you know incorporate animation and art and graphics and, and make things as, as shiny and wonderful and exciting as possible and it's important that that that, that level of interactivity and uh, is is there but you have to really balance it with with the give and take of you know how how much is that animation going to bloat my app Right, right. How can I be really smart about how I do animation inside the app so that I'm not increasing the size in a way that's going to become prohibitive for families? Yeah, for sure. I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um, Aaron, are there? Uh, I know you guys have a couple apps that you uh, a couple pieces of content that you mention in in the tip sheet that um, you know do a good job of making content available in Spanish and English. Um, sort of doing a good job of, of um, engaging with the Hispanic Latino audience. Um, are there specific apps that you, you'd like to, to mention? And, and certainly we'll um, put this tip sheet on our, um, in our show notes so that people can, can access it and obviously link to it um, on the, the Cooney Center. But are there specific apps, too, that, that you think are, are really doing an effective job? Sure. Uh, as far as apps go, our, our PBS Play and Learn app is, is definitely one of my favorite apps that I feel like is inclusive of all families uh, and specifically does a nice job of connecting with Hispanic Latino families. The app itself is is really for parents and their kids to, to play together and includes, is, is really location-based, so you get to pick, you know, it's like, where, where are you right now? Are you at the zoo? Are you at the park? Are you at the grocery store? And you, you have all, you have like over 13 choices of locations. Uh, and in those places, it then gives you, there's a digital game you can play that is associated with that place, but also a, a whole bunch of tips and activities for parents for how they can turn their experience in that place into a learning learning experience for them and their kids. Uh, and that app is, is incredibly easy to to toggle between English and Spanish, but it's, you know, it's not just a, a, a one-to-one translation. We really did a nice job, I think, of of when translating, making it culturally specific and, and, and calling out different aspects of, of experiences accordingly. Um, and then the other, we also mention in the tip sheet and I'll call it, shout them out right now. Cause I think these other, these other shows do a great job, but Sesame street does a phenomenal mm-hmm. job of, of really hitting on that cultural piece. And there's a really great playlist uh, that li- is linked to in the tip sheet that shows a bunch of videos that they've made. Uh, and they're really well suited to being able to hone in on different specifics with their sketch approach to the show. Uh, yeah. And then, and then Peep in the Big Wide World, which just came out of WGBH in Boston. Uh, they've just done. Check out the blog post from the on the Cooney Center site that's linked to in the in the sheet because they've just done a phenomenal job of you know really activating the community and engaging with and listening to the Hispanic Latino community in the development of, of the property and the digital pieces. And it's a really phenomenal case study of, of just how well they've listened and responded. Um, and then the last, the last thing I'll say is the, the work that, the work that I sort of get the most excited about in terms of reaching 
not just Hispanic Latino families, but reaching all families and all kids is the work that we do that really puts kids and families at the center of their own creative process. Right. Uh, you know, I think this is true of us. This is true of, you know, apps like uh, Toontastic and Telestory and some of the Tokabokas and, and, and a lot of other apps. But as, as often as you can put the experience, the creative experience in the hands of the kids and the families themselves, they get to turn it into whatever they want to turn it into. And as long as you make the tool accessible, uh, like you really giving them the chance to express and to communicate and to create is a, is a really wonderful way to bring families in and, and, and really being also thoughtful about how you allow them to share, uh, share that content I think is also important. So, uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of our PBS kids scratch junior app. I think it's a great way for kids to create and to communicate. Uh, and you know, it's all, icon based so while it's available in both English and Spanish like you don't even need a language in the app which I think is great um, and you know we're working on some other projects right now that I'm really excited about that that are creativity based that I think are great that's awesome um, we're uh, we're excited to to hear more about them and, and see them as, as they come out um, Aaron thanks uh, thanks so much for coming on and we will um, be sure to to be on the lookout for some more tip sheets from from you guys. Thank you so much for having me, uh, and thank you for the great work that you all are doing. Uh, I think your toolkit. I haven't dug deep into it, but it, it looks like it's coming along phenomenally. And there's just a lot of places where our thinking is overlapping. And and the more we continue to build this community of thought, you know, I think the better off. The, the smarter and, and better we're going to make this community and we're going to create better things for kids and for families so thank you guys thank you well said <laughs>